Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Uh, Friends, I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32, beginning in verse 22. Genesis 32 and verse 22. We pick up the story mid-episode in the middle of one of the longest nights of Jacob's life. Genesis 32:22. Hear these words. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything he had. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. This is the reading of the Holy Word. May God and now add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. Will you pray with me? God, in this moment, we are open and listening to you. In this moment, we have gathered around your sacred word and we have yielded ourselves to the possibility that we may hear something in this room, in this conversation, in this moment that can shape us, strengthen us, give reason to be for us. And our prayer is that you would relieve from the minds and hearts and the shoulders of your worshipers, any burden that would prevent us from seeing you. 
from hearing you and from loving you. In the name of Christ, we pray, amen. So today is the second part in a uh, multi-part series that we are calling Epic Fail. We're trying to take a new look at failure. We're trying to look at failure through a different set of lenses. There are so many things that can be done and said in this moment. Many of you asked me about my black eye this week. You're laughing and you don't even know the story. That's just cruel. That's not even nice. So I'm wrestling with my boys again. Yeah. When will he learn? Never. Epic fail, somebody said this week. I caught a knee to the eye, broke my glasses, gave me a nice shiner that I get to tell the story about all, all week long. And yet, what an interesting entree into the text chosen long ago about a wrestling match through the night and through failure. I want us to look these few days about failure in a different way. We have always seen failure as some kind of a problem, some kind of an obstacle to where we're going. But as we established last week, failure offers something to us that success never could. See, failure opens up a space in our lives for us to experience the love and the action of God in a way that we would have never experienced the love and action of God if everything were just fine. Failure puts us in a posture of humility. It breaks us. It puts us in a posture in which we're receptive to see our lives through a different set of lenses. Sometimes we think of failure as an obstacle, but what we said last week was that failure is not an obstacle to our spiritual journey. Failure is an avenue for it. Or another way that we say it is that failure is not some kind of impediment. It's a pathway. Because in the midst of failure, we are receptive to see the love and the action of God in a way that we will have never seen it when we thought everything was just fine. And so along the way, what I've been trying to say so far is that we have to get more comfortable talking about our failures because we live in a time and in a space where it's impossible to be vulnerable with each other. But if we can learn to be vulnerable with each other and get in touch with our own humanity, it may give permission to one another to become human. And in becoming human, get to see the face of God like we've never seen it before. That's why every week I'm trying to tell you a little something about how I failed along the way. I got a big old long list of my epic fails, and you only get to hear part of them, all right? But today I want to tell you something about the greatest epic failure of my ministry thus far. <laughs> There's still room to grow, still room to fall. But I got to tell you about the greatest, most epic fail of my ministry. I was in Orlando, Florida. And I had been called back to Tennessee to do a wedding. I've told some of you this story before. To do a wedding of a young lady who uh, was a teenager when I was her pastor. I baptized her. I got to know the family. The family loved me. I loved them. They said, would you come back and do the wedding? And I said, ah, absolutely. We're there. 
So the entire family went with me. Laura and the boys, we got in the, we got in the car and we headed, we headed up to Tennessee. Rehearsal night was fantastic. I mean, it went off without a hitch. It was a lot of fun. We laughed. Uh, we went out to eat afterwards. There was great levity and joy, giddiness. We were ready. We were ready. The next day came, and all the preparations had been made for this wedding. And so we got ready at the place where we were staying. We got in the car, and we headed out uh, way ahead of time. I like to get to places early because if you're early, you're on time. And if you're on time, you're late. Come on right now. So we're in the car. We're headed to the wedding, and we get up on the exit. And at the exit, we're about 30 minutes away from the church. And at the exit, I pull off, and we're scheduled to arrive about 30 minutes prior to the 6 o'clock wedding. And I get a phone call, and my cell phone rings. I answer it, and it's a buddy of mine who's in the sound booth at the church. And he says to me in a whisper, hey, are you close? I said, well, yeah, I just got off the exit. Why are you whispering? I'm close. About 30 minutes. Well, I'll be there soon. I'm, I'm close. He said, okay, uh, they're walking in. I said, who's walking in? I said, that's normal. They come in, bride side, groom side. It's normal for them to come in early. He said, no, 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 no. The bridesmaids and the groomsmen are walking into the church. I'm not there. He said, yeah, yeah, I know. Hurry. (laughs) I said, I'm 30 minutes away. He said, the thing started at 5. I said, no, no, it starts at 6 o'clock. He said, no, it started at 5. I said, Tim, it started, it starts at six o'clock. And he said, dude, they're standing in the church. <laughs> I hung up and a buddy pedaled to the metal. I broke every land speed record in McMinn County. We were flying. I think my children are still in therapy from the, the fear that was struck into them. We were going mock, you know, whatever. And, and we, we got halfway there. About 15 minutes later, I get another phone call. He says, hey, are you close? <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm closer. I, I said, I am 15 minutes away. He said, okay, okay. Um, I'll, I'll tell him to sing another song. <laughs> and I said, well, they better make it a cantata because I'm 15 minutes away. And I hang up and I take off and oh my goodness. By the way, can I just break into this story for just a minute and say, um, just as, a, as an aside, what wedding coordinator sends in the wedding party if the pastor's not on campus? <laughs> Teresa, you would never do that. Teresa's our wedding coordinator here. Now, I'm like, I could have been on the side of the road. I could have been, had a flat tire. I could have been abducted by aliens. They would have never known. Their assumption was, oh, just go in. He'll, he'll materialize. <laughs> so we arrive on campus on like two wheels. You know, hubcaps spinning off into the distance. We come to a screeching halt, literally. I think my family hits the dashboard as I stop. I grab my robe, and I'm, I'm booking it. I'm on the inside, running through the hallways, putting on my robe. It looks like Batman, you know, or Judge Judy. Or, and, and, I, and I'm parched. I'm, my heart rate is up. Meanwhile, remember, there's a church full of people, packed house, and they've been standing there for about 20 minutes. 
everybody except the bride and the groom. As I'm walking by the sanctuary, I hear the person in the microphone say, well, let's just go to the hymnal now. <laughs> so it's, it's favorite hymn night there at First Baptist Etowah now. And I duck into this room where the groomsmen had been getting ready and I was looking for something to drink. I was thirsty and I saw all these, these McDonald cups half filled with stuff. <laughs> At that point, I didn't care what it was. I grabbed one and chugged it. I mean, it could have been tobacco spit all I knew, you know. <laughs> yeah. It, fortunately, it was some kind of a Coke, right? I go in I collect myself, the church is filled, the, the party is standing there. I motion to the bride's mother to stand, and the bride comes, and we have this great, this great ceremony. Oh, epic fail. Shortly after the ceremony, they were, man, they were so forgiving. They were gracious. They were loving. They were accepting. And we took pictures afterwards, and we took this picture right afterwards. <laughs> There's the bride and groom, and I'm like, it was six o'clock, right? And he's like, no, five. <laughs> Look at that picture for just a moment there. Not only there is great grace and compassion on the part of the bride and groom, I just adore them. But I look at that picture, and can I just tell you what I see when I see that picture? I have kind of a Pavlovian, my heart is racing even now as I think about it. That was entirely my fault. 100% completely my fault. I could, all day long, I could be over here and talk about what kind of wedding coordinator would send in the party? She shoulda, he shoulda, we coulda. But at the end of the day, that was 100% completely on me. And it occurs to me in the journey that I've made thus far, that there are some moments when we fail and fail so big that the only way out of our epic fail, the only way to survive an epic failure is to own it. To own it. To say out loud, I blew it. I didn't want it to get this way. I didn't want for the thing to happen, for the thing to unfold at work, at home, with school, whatever. But the only way that we can get out of the epic failure or survive the fail when it is so large is to own it. Because when we own it, when we say out loud, I have blown it, it puts us in a posture that makes us receptive to experience the redemptive work of God because we have confessed that I am broken and I have fallen and I am not perfect and need your help. Just ask Jacob. In the story that we just wrote, read a moment ago about Jacob and this long night of wrestling, wrestling the stranger through the night, his anguish, his struggle all through the midnight hours, I want you to know we come into the story in the middle of it, but you may know Jacob's story from start to finish. You may know everything about him because many of you have grown up in the church and you know the stories of the patriarchs. You know where he's from. You know his character. You know his, his type of personality. But there are some in this room who don't. 
And there are some perhaps who are new to the faith or new to our expression of the faith, and maybe you're not aware of, of who Jacob is. And, and I want you to know so that you can appreciate the power of the story that we're reading. I want you to know that Jacob, when he was born, was a twin. He was a twin. And he had a brother named Esau, and Esau was his older brother because Esau was born first. But you know the great part of that story of his birth is when Jacob and Esau were born, Esau was birthed, and then the text says that Jacob was born <laughs> holding on to the, the heel of his older brother. Rabbinic legend later would say that he was holding on to his heel because he was trying to pull him back into the womb so that Jacob could be born first and receive the birthright of the firstborn. And that's why at his birth he was named Yahov, Jacob, which literally means heel grabber. Yeah. Anybody named Jacob in the room? Okay, we're safe maybe. Yahov means heel grabber, or translated means uh, one who is a trickster or a supplanter, one who is conniving and twists everything possible to get what he or she wants. So, Yaakov means he is a heel grabber, and from his birth, he receives this reputation that he is one who's going to wrangle everything in his life in order to get what he wants. He's going to twist it. He's going to hold on to it until he gets it his way. So, the brothers grow up, and they become young adults, and yeah, his older brother looks different than him. He, he's a man's man. He's a big guy. He's hairy. He's an outdoorsman. All the ladies loved him, you know. And he goes out one day to hunt for food, and he comes back famished. He's hungry. And Jacob, who had been in the kitchen cooking, was preparing a bowl of what the text says is red stuff. That literally is what it's called, red stuff. Turns out it was probably lentil soup. And he's, he's eating this lentil soup. And his older brother, the perfect older brother, the outdoorsman, the handsome guy, the hairy guy, comes in and he says, what are you eating? Give me some of that red stuff. And Jacob, the heel grabber, the one who connives and twists and supplants and tricks, says, some of this? Psych. Some of this? Want some? Give me your birthright. And in that moment, the older brother negotiates and says, fine, have my birthright, but give me your food. A whole series of sermons could be built upon don't sell your birthright for a cup of soup. So many of us give up our true identity for what is immediate and what is satisfying only to recognize when the meal is over, the hunger remains. But that's another sermon altogether. He sells his birthright to his brother because his brother, the heel grabber, Yaakov, tricked him. Later on in life, when their father is really old, the text says that his, his vision is dimmed. He can't see very well. And so the father, Isaac, says to his son, firstborn Esau, go hunt and bring back some game and fix that dish that I really like. You know the one. And so Esau goes out and hunts. And while he's gone, Jacob dresses up like his older brother, puts fur on his arms so he has hairy arms, <laughs> and he smells like him. He fixes the dish like his older brother would fix, and he shows up to his poor old 
father who can't tell the difference and says, here's your meal. Give me my blessing. And his father was tricked, swindled, heel-grabbed, if you will, to bless Jacob instead of the older brother. Wow. And so he got his blessing. He got his birthright, but he got it by grabbing. He got it by tricking, by swindling, conniving. And now he's on his own. There's no choice at that point but to leave home and he leaves home and he goes out and 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 makes a life and he falls in love with this girl this beautiful girl named Rachel and he goes to the father of Rachel and says to the father of Rachel I really your daughter is she's you know I've you know that's that's Hebrew by the way you know, yeah. <laughs> she and I'd like to marry her and the father says work for me for seven years and you can marry her and he does He works for seven years and then there's this elaborate wedding and there's this feast and they go through the wedding and they go through the wedding night and the next next day he wakes up and turns over and sees that it wasn't Rachel but her sister Leah and that his father-in-law had tricked him into marrying the wrong woman. He had heel grabbed the heel grabber. Now when you wake up, the night after your wedding and recognize that you have accidentally married the wrong woman, that's a bad day. (laughs) He goes to the father-in-law and says, what? And the father says, yeah, oops. But in our culture, we don't marry the youngest first, but the oldest. Work seven more years and you can have Rachel. He works seven more years. But while he's working the seven years, you know what he's doing? He's heel grabbing. He's in charge of the father-in-law's flocks. So he's manipulating the breeding process of the flocks so that all of the, 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 the livestock that belongs to Jacob becomes the strongest livestock and all that remains with Laban is the weakest. And upon the seventh year, they get married and he moves away and takes all the best livestock he had. He'll grab the heel grabber again. And so now he has just left Laban. He and his two wives and his 11 children and all the best stock that he had swindled out of his father-in-law. And his father-in-law is hot on his trail and he's headed toward the Jabbok. But then Jacob gets word that just a few miles away is Esau whom he had not seen in 20 years he had angered him by stealing his birthright and his blessing 20 years prior and now he's at the river Jabbok and he hears that just a few miles away Esau is coming to see him and he's bringing 400 of his men bad day So it's night, the sun has set, and he recognizes that he's right here in this crucible, this crucible in between what is coming and what is coming, what is behind him and what is ahead of him, and never before has he felt such angst, and he, with a decision of wisdom, sends his family across the river and splits them up in case something happens. And the text that you and I read, it opens up with a very haunting verse. Perhaps the most haunting verse of this entire, entire narrative. This is how it reads. Jacob was left alone 
and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Jacob was left alone. Can I just acknowledge that there are some failures <laughs> that are so big that it cuts off everybody from you? There is a kind of epic fail in which you burn every relational bridge you have. Jacob had burned every relational bridge that he had. And now he was absolutely alone. And there are some failures in which you, and you know, if you've experienced failure at its best, <laughs> you know, there are some failures that can put you in a posture in which you feel the abject isolation of Jacob and no help in sight. The text says he wrestles all through the night. Wrestles with a man through the night. You know what it's like to wrestle through the night. <laughs> to wrestle with an opponent that seems to keep getting the best position, the, the opponent that keeps putting you in submission holes, the opponent that keeps threatening you and causing you to tremble in fear. He wrestled, the text says, all day night, all night long until daybreak. He wrestled with this strange figure in the night. And I don't know what it is that you wrestle with, but you do. And you know what it is that keeps you up at night. You know who your opponent is. And you know what it's like to be stricken with fear that this failure will undo you. Some of you do not know that in my former life, I was a wrestler. That's right. It wasn't WWF. It wasn't college. It wasn't high school. It wasn't junior high. Okay, it was second grade. <laughs> second grade, I was so small and so weak that the, you know, the tights that you wear when you're wrestling, I had to wear like t-shirts underneath it so that it didn't gape open. I was that small and tiny, and yet I was on this team with all these guys that I really looked up to. And, and it came to the day of my first match. I remember it vividly. And I'm standing there on one side of this table waiting for my name to be called to go out onto the mat. Man, I was excited. This is going to be, this is going to be fun. This is going to be great. I mean, look at all these wrestlers in the gym, all these different color uniforms, the coaches yelling, the fans cheering, whistles blowing, uh, hands slapping on mats. It's going to be fantastic. And I look over. I mean, I had prepared for that that day. Even the older guys on my team had, had, had taught me how to, how to stare in a way that intimidated my opponent. You know, you, you, you raise your eyebrow up and you, you kind of grit your teeth a little bit. You look confident. I was ready. I was ready to, to pull it out. And I looked on the other side of this table and there's this, this monster. <laughs> I mean, this guy had a uniform on too, but he had like muscles bulging out of the uniform. I remember thinking to myself, man, he must have gotten stung by something. I swelled up like that. How does that happen? Wow, that guy is scary. Glad I don't have to wrestle him. Well, they called my name out, and I start to step out on the mat, and he starts to step out on the mat, and I freeze, and time freezes, and the sun stands still. And I turn to look at my coach as if to say, a mistake has been made. <laughs> this cannot be happening. He said, go on. 
And as I walked to the line, you know, you tow the line and I'm standing there and, and you know, the, the ref comes and puts a little colored um, ankle thing around you to, to see what color. And I felt like a lamb sled led to the slaughter. I'm waiting for this thing to happen. And this guy's standing there and I'm looking at him and he's like, you know, he's got this stare down. He's got his eyes up and his I'm sure, I'm absolutely positive. Charles, I think I saw like foam coming out of his mouth at one point and I look and the whistle blows, and, and I said, the Lord is my shepherd. <laughs> I shall not. And then boom, he grabs my leg. I'm down on the mat, and he pins me in eight seconds. I'm not kidding. I didn't even put up a fight. I thought to myself, if I could just make myself as limp as possible, <laughs> then this will be over in a hurry. I'm, I'm serious. So pins me, I get up, I, I walked off the mat, and my coach says, um, got scared, didn't you? And I said, yeah, but what he didn't know, I was just happy to be alive, you know? I think about that strange memory, because no laughing matter, there are some nights when we wrestle all night long with an opponent that intimidates the daylights out of us. And I don't know what your, your opponent is and, and, or the thing that happened or the person it is or the season you're about to go into, but you know what it's like for your legs to shake with fear, thinking I have no way out of this but to just, you know. Jacob wrestled all night long. But the strange thing about this story is that we don't know who he wrestled. I mean, who did he wrestle? The text says he wrestled a man. But later on in the text, it implies that it was a, a, like a, a divine messenger or an angel. Then later at the end of the text, Jacob even says, hey, I have seen the face of God face to face and I have survived. So which is it? Did he wrestle a man or an angel or was he wrestling God? And I find that interesting because you and I do the very same thing. Maybe the answer is there is no answer. Like this, this image here that we have. The rendering of Jacob struggling with his nighttime wrestler. You can't really tell who it is or what it is, but you can tell he's held on tight. At first, he thinks it's a man. Isn't that interesting? Or in other words, if I could summarize it, Jacob thinks that his, the source of his pain or the source of his anguish or the source of his struggle is someone else, which is exactly what you and I do when we are hurting when we go through a thing, we immediately blame, well, my, my family didn't have this resource or I wasn't raised in this particular way or, or if it's my boss, if, if she didn't behave this way or my colleague didn't have this thing going on, if my spouse didn't have to deal with this thing or my children with this other thing. So we assume that the source of our pain and our anguish and our wrestling and struggle is something else and someone else. But sooner or later, Jacob realized that the source of his struggle was something deeper than just a man. Because his wrestler touches him on the hip and it hurts him for life. And he recognizes that he's wrestling with God. Do you know the unique pain of wrestling with God? So you and I struggle if you've been raised in the South, if you've been raised in a religious tradition at all. You struggle because we struggle with God. But the thing that we struggle with is that we struggle with struggling with God. 
It's human to struggle with God, but we struggle with struggling with God because we assume that it's off limits. The truth is the Bible is crammed with example after example of heroes in the faith who have struggled with God and survived. Those who have called out to God, blamed God, doubted God, questioned God, and yet survived. We're told that this stranger in the night says to Jacob, let me go, morning is coming. And Jacob says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And right then, Jacob gives us the example of what faith looks like. Because there's a difference between blaming and letting go and blaming and holding on. You know, I was in a conversation with J.W. in here this week about a new book out called uh, the Rise of the Nuns, and that's nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, but nuns, the N-O-N-E-S. The fastest growing group in America are those who, uh, who affiliate with no religious organization. So if you get a survey, are you Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, or none? None is the fastest growing. But there's another group called the Duns. <laughs> The duns. That means they've been religious. They've come. They've tried it. They tried faith, but something happened. They, they were burned. They were hurt, maybe by a person in the church or by God himself, and they are just done, and they've walked away. And so you and I, over the next several years and decades, we get to figure out how to reach them and love them back into faith. But for the time being, Jacob teaches us that there is an example here to be followed. You can blame and hurt and doubt and struggle and question and cry out and rail and rant against God and still hold on. There's a difference between doubting and letting go and doubting and holding on. And when we hold on through a nighttime of wrestling, <laughs> everything changes. The man then says to him, or the person he's struggling with says to him, perhaps the most penetrating question of this entire story. I mean, they're wrestling and, and, and Jacob has him in this kind of jujitsu, you know, submission hold. And he's asked the question, these words. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, Jacob has him in this hold. And this nighttime wrestler says to Jacob, what is your name? And in this moment, he, he recognizes he has to say it. Yahov, I am the trickster. I am the swindler. I am the supplanter. I am the heel grabber. And suddenly in that moment, every beef that he had with Laban, his father-in-law, and every beef that he had with Esau, his brother, was not about Esau and not about Laban or the rules or the laws of the land. His problem was Jacob. Jacob's biggest wrestling opponent was Jacob. 
And he realized when he confessed it in that moment that he received a brand new name. The opponent then says, you will no longer be known as Jacob because now you've confessed it. You've admitted. Now you recognize who you are. Now you will be called Israel because you have struggled with God and with people and you have survived. Friends, I just want to speak to someone here who may be struggling with a failure that has happened. Or perhaps one that you're in the middle of. Or a failure that you can't stop and it's on its way. Your name is not failure. Your name is not blame, accusation. Your name is beloved. And when you forget that you are beloved, there is a way to return. There is a way to remember, and it begins with confession. To say, I am Jacob. We're told in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We may even say it this way, all have failed and have fallen short of God's ideal version of us. All of us. But it's 1 John that gives us the hope. But if we confess our sins, our failures, our flaws, our troubles, our brokenness, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's possible to be made new even in the midst of failure. But it begins with an openness to the love and action of God that otherwise could not be yours. Maybe today, that is where you are. Let's pray together. God, during this prayer, we, we take just a moment to consider all that you have done to redeem. The length to which you go to bring us home. We recognize that as great as our successes can be, even greater can our failures dismantle life. Break us apart. We pray that in the midst of brokenness and failure, you would give us the courage to confess, to own our failure, to say it out loud. We have blown it, and we need you. Lord, somebody here in this place today needs the hope that only you can offer, and we pray that you would restore that hope even now as we worship you. In Christ's name, amen.